me just first check the volume. Is it picking up? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. In the last sitting, I was really appreciating the quietude of the hall and just the palpable energy of your presences. I had the image arise of like a, you know, the rice paper lamps when there's a candle inside, the way the glow kind of comes through the rice paper. It's that kind of a feel for me after our days of practice together. So I'll continue tonight weaving the themes, weaving, you know, Dara's beautiful wisdom talk last night, and Matthew's just warm compassion instruction today. One image that's often used for this path is like a bird, a bird with two great wings, one wing being the wing of wisdom that we cultivate through the insight and Vipassana practices, and one wing being the wing of compassion, the wing of the heart that we cultivate through the heart practices, and that in order for our practice to really take off, both wings need to be cultivated in equal measure And they're certainly not separate from one another. They're of the same bird. And perhaps you're seeing by now how the heart practices are part of what allows the insight and the precision of the Vipassana practice to actually go in more deeply. Now, the difference between water that that pools on top of the ground and water that just soaks into the soil deeper and deeper and deeper, drop by drop over time. And when we offer these talks, you know, the words are part of the talk to frame up the content for you. But we want you to just really attuned to your experience more deeply than the words. There's no need to capture the words. Just to really sense what you experience uh, during the talks. And a lot of why we're sharing what we share from up here is to support you in continuing to do the practice, to be inspired on some level. It takes so much kindness, so much compassion to begin to soften enough so that we can do the real work of undoing, of softening the heart, of softening the attitude so that mindfulness um, can do its mysterious magic. Because the most habituated places in our patterning, the places of well-trodden karmic knots, these these pieces, the tangles that come up over and over again, 
perhaps you've experienced some of these tangles. Actually, probably. Is there anybody here who hasn't experienced some kind of tangle during these days of retreat? Some measure of self-judgment or anger or not good enough or an entitlement you wish you didn't have. These these tight places don't easily give way without the warm embrace of our care. And my own practice didn't actually start with insight practice. My own practice started with compassion practice, and it's kind of a good thing it happened in that way for me because I think the suffering was so much that I don't know how I would have done with full-on mindfulness at 19 years old. But I knew that I could practice compassion. And when I came across compassion practice way back when, it had actually never occurred to me that I could do anything other than run the other direction from my suffering. It was just never, ever a possibility. And as I began to work with compassion practice and began to see, oh, these really tough places right here can be a vehicle to awaken compassion. It, it, it really shifted my relationship to what was really, really challenging in my life. Once I saw, oh, this can be a vehicle to awaken compassion, somehow the suffering didn't feel so unworkable. It didn't feel so meaningless. And it's really difficult to let suffering deepen us, to let suffering bring forth our goodness without the presence of the wing of the heart. And the door of compassion opens inwardly. It doesn't just open out here. It it opens inwardly. We keep saying this in different ways from the front of the room. Matthew was speaking about this this afternoon, about the kind of mourning that's part of um, deepening in our, in our practice. And we don't want to deny or reject these, these sticky places, but to know that even what's true for you in your mind-body process tonight on Sunday night It's not the same as it was when you walked in the door on Wednesday. Something's happening here. Something's happening here. You're not the exact same person as you were on Wednesday. And I was reflecting that we wouldn't be here in this way without the compassion of the Buddha. You know, when he came to his great realization after a hard, long journey, um, he didn't know if he should teach. He didn't know if he should teach. 
He knew that teaching wouldn't be an easy path, but he knew that there were beings who didn't have so much dust in their eyes, who may have the capacity to uh, experience some of the freedom that he had come to know. And as he started teaching, you know, he dealt with all of these arguments in communities, and people tried to kill him, and he lived in the forest. He could have just not taught. He could have just said, I'm going to sit here in my blissful concentration for the rest of my life. But he didn't. He got into it. You know, he got into the mess. And when he was asked why he didn't choose to have had a pleasant life in a palace with food and people working for him, um, and you know, he was asked, why, did you, why are you living this life in the forest? And he said, I see a pleasant abiding for myself here and now, and I have compassion for future generations. And this is being asked of us in this time. You know, deep questions. What does it require us to have compassion for future generations? And the way that his teaching arose in India was in the form of a spiritual force against social injustice, against the isms of his time. And so, you know, to be really practical, sometimes... Sometimes you can use just a very simple three-step process. You know, when you're in one of these tangles or life throws you something you don't want. Just, okay, this is a moment of suffering. This is hard right now. We recognize it. And it sounds very simple, right? We keep saying this in different ways, but in the moment, it's often not. In the moment, we're caught up in it. And as soon as you recognize, oh, this is a moment of suffering, this is hard right now, bam. If it's a moment of suffering, it can be used as a vehicle to awaken compassion. Remember that. The second, suffering is part of life. You can just begin to think about all the beings who may be going through some suffering not dissimilar from your own. May I hold my suffering with kindness and compassion. And the third, which I mentioned yesterday, to feel your being not just as the suffering, but also as that which, that, that presence of wisdom that can hold it. To sense into how is that for you. It may be a sense of spaciousness or melting or just moment-to-moment awareness, or the, the momentum of your intentions. It's, it's not all suffering. It can feel like that. I told you the first part of my story about my cat in my last Dharma talk, about my cat destroying two computers. And um, the rest of the story about my cat has to do with this practice, uh, because I didn't really know, you know, what to do. <laughs> I was joking with Dura. Dura's been to my house a, a bunch of times. Um, we have fun in Durango. And one time Dura came to visit, and um, my cat destroyed her suitcase. <laughs> Dura met it with a lot of grace <laughs> as, as a fellow cat lover. But, um, you know, it's like not, not the best situation. And so a few of my friends said, Aaron, you know, you, the, the, this cat has to have a new home. 
like she keeps destroying your things. And it's true. And I was having a lot of um, trouble with that because I felt responsible for, for this beautiful, bright-eyed, black-and-white tuxedo cat. And I'm the daughter of a veterinarian and grew up working in his veterinary clinic, um, my dad's clinic in Fargo, North Dakota, where I'm from, like the movie. <laughs> no kidding. And... Um, and so my dear, wise friends went to work for me, and they found a new home for my cat in Santa Fe. There's this woman who basically, her whole home is taking in these cats that have these unique situations, such as my cat. And now Luna's living in this home in Santa Fe where she has a catio. It's like a hole in the wall with this whole patio that's just hers. They call it a catio, not a patio. And uh I get pictures of her. She's doing great. But it took me years to do that because I was so concerned about my cat. It was like it was a little bit out of balance, right? So, so much concern for the cat. I was like, my friend said, Aaron, what about you? <laughs> what about you? And it, ju- it just took this reorienting to really actually include my lived experience as part of the situation and also to include the presence of equanimity. You know, to include the presence of as silly as it sounds, like, you know, I, I care for this creature, and that, and that she's on her life's journey as well. So the balance of the compassion for her suffering and my suffering and, and letting her also be on her life's journey. So you want to just kind of track when, when the compassion is really out here, when it's in here, and, and when there feels like there's this this awake balance that has some measure of equanimity, internal, external, and both. Because compassion does bring us into the relational field. We're not boxes um, cut off from one another. Even when you consider the presence of the mirror neurons that are here for you now, your mirror neurons are responding to me, and I'm responding to yours. It's happening like a web throughout the room, actually. And as we continue along the path, an awareness that's not bound up by separateness, compassion and activity is the only response. It's the natural response. There's no defense when the awareness isn't bound up with SOS, sense of self. Franz Kafka said, you can hold yourself back from the sufferings of the world. That is something you are free to do, and it accords with your nature. But perhaps this very holding back is the one suffering you could avoid. So it's an inquiry. It does the tension actually protect you? It's natural. Does it protect you? Like sometimes we do harden up our bellies. Like, oh, where is it okay to soften the belly a bit? And I want to speak about the three kinds of suffering as they relate to compassion practice. Dara touched into this last night because we use the term suffering quite broadly. 
stress, tension, unsatisfactoriness. Dukkha means a, a wheel that's not quite on its kilter. It's like a wheel that's not quite working right. And the first kind of suffering is called dukkha dukkha. Like the stress of stress. It's unmistakable. There's a stress in being born. There's a stress in getting sick. There's suffering in aging. There's suffering in dying. And so often in our bodies, when things are working well, we don't really think about it. But if you've ever had something change on a dime in your body, you start thinking about it. So dukkha, dukkha is just this unmistakable suffering that's part of being human. We can include in that some of the suffering of the mind, some of the suffering of the second arrow. We can include in that some of the suffering of the systems that shape our lives. I mean, I I could go on and on. Here's an example of real compassion. Uh, some of you know Gregory Boyle. Father Gregory Boyle wrote Tattoos on the Heart. Really inspiring Jesuit. And he's seen a lot. He's sat with a lot. He's been through a lot. And Krista Tippett was interviewing him. And uh, she asked him, how do you see yourself as a part rather than apart from the world? And she says, she says to him, the interviewer says to him, you talk about people whose parent would put their head in the toilet and flush the toilet and nearly drown them. Basically, that's waterboarding your child in the toilet. So when people have been brought up like this, duka duka, and they're also poor and they have no real future prospects, how do you heal them? Like, what can heal somebody who's been through that? So that's what she's asking him. And he says, well, part of what we have at Homeboy, which is the nonprofit he founded for people who are coming out of incarceration and and need some support, part of what we have at Homeboy is this irresistible culture of tenderness, you know, where people kind of hold each other. It's a place of containment, a place where people can regulate And they all come back with, you know, kind of chronic, toxic stress that's attached to them, like a big, old, heavy backpack. And if they can find relief, then they no longer have to actually operate out of the survivor brain. And they can find our place as something of a sanctuary, and they can come to terms with what was done to them, but also what they did. And then we always say at Homeboy, if you don't transform your pain, you're just going to keep transmitting it. So it breaks this cycle. And pretty soon, if they cooperate and surrender to it, then they become the sanctuary that they sought here. And then they go home and they provide that sanctuary to their kids, and suddenly you've broken a cycle. Isn't that beautiful? an irresistible culture of tenderness. 
suffering as a vehicle to grow the heart, the heart's compassionate response. That's the first kind of suffering. The second is what Draw talked about last night. It's the suffering of change. It's called dukkha viparinama. You know, like you have a good meditation, you want it next time. We want to be happy and stay happy. We get attached. I won't say so much about this because Dara explained it last night. This is like this, this, all the suffering is due to clinging and attachment. It's particular to trying to stop the waves. And so part of this kind of suffering has to do with the experience of loss, which is part of the human experience. I uh, am part of a really flourishing, thriving sangha in southwestern Colorado, where I live. And one of our elder people in the Sangha, uh, who I've known for a really long time, he's a quite mature practitioner with just a beautiful, beautiful heart. And the love of his life, who he's been with nearly 40 years, died um, within six weeks of of a diagnosis. It was very, very unexpected. And I had been close to him through this whole journey, he spent a month in the hospital with her because of the pandemic. He was the only one that could be with her in the hospital. And so I go spend time with him. He makes me a scone. And we have scones and tea, and we talk dharma. And there's something about being with him in this time because he's, he's suffering, you know, because of the, well, what feels like for him the too early loss of his beloved. It's like... He's suffering, and he's so open. I was part of, um, part of performing her burial. She did a, a green burial, so she was buried in a basket made of seagrass. It's very powerful, those of you who have been part of a burial. It's very powerful and elemental, um, putting a body into the ground and helping to cover it with dirt. And... Um, there's a way that his practice is so alive that I'm like, why am I drawn to sit with him? And it's, it's because the suffering is so acute and the compassion is so acute. Like he's, he's there, his heart is quivering and so tender. So it's like, oh, I'm in the field of a teaching when I'm with him. Suffering can deepen us and bring forth goodness if we let it. And he has the practice to actually let it. It's very, very inspiring. This is a poem called Adrift by Mark Nepo. Perhaps it speaks to some element of your experience as well. But it makes me think of um, how I feel sometimes when I sit with him. Everything is beautiful, and I am so sad. This is how the heart makes a duet of wonder and grief. 
the light spraying through the lace of the fern is as delicate as the fibers of memory forming their web around the knot in my throat. The breeze makes the birds move from branch to branch as this ache makes me look for those I've lost in the next room, in the next song, in the laugh of the next stranger. In the very center, under it all, what we have that no one can take away and all that we've lost face each other. It is there that I'm adrift, feeling punctured by a holiness that exists inside everything. I am so sad, and everything is beautiful. The poignancy of the suffering of change infused with the presence of compassion. My favorite line from this poem is feeling punctured by a holiness that exists inside everything. The third kind of suffering is called Sankara Dukkha. And the word Sankara means formation or fabrication. Most of what you're observing, like a thought or a pleasurable sensation or an ache or the words in your mind, they're all Sankaras. They're all conditioned phenomena arising and passing through. They come from somewhere. They might feel like they come from nowhere, but they come from conditions, causes and conditions. And there's three kinds. There's kaya sankara. That means the sankara of the body, all the sensations of the body, all that goes on. You can feel the kaya sankara right now. Kaya means body, bodily formations. Then we have vachi sankara, which are the verbal formations. You know, I'm, you're hearing my voice. You may be having verbal thoughts in your mind. Those are sankara. Where was the word I said one minute ago? It's not here anymore. And the third one is chitta sankara. These are the, the formations that happen through the heart and the mind, emotional tones, um, Thoughts that come in the form of images. Just anything that passes through um, the heart-mind in this way. And the reason this is considered to be a form of suffering is, is that it's like a, the, the, the tension of how it is to live a human life that is um, directed by so many conditions. And on one level... Yeah, we have a choice in how we respond. That's part of our agency, right? We have a choice in how we respond, but even that is conditioned. You know, it comes from somewhere, and it's related to um, 
It's related to karma on some level. But sankara dukkha is a feeling of wanting to be in control of our lives and on a certain level, um, it's empty. On a certain level, when we see all the conditions coming and going, like, where are you in that? You as a finite, independent being, can you find it? And so, um, this is a kind of suffering that, that often is, often, often we're less likely to realize, recognize, we're, we're less likely to see it, um, but can be kind of a general background feeling of anxiety or insecurity that, that may even be there in, in moments of real, real happiness. And for me, I remember sitting one retreat it was just this feeling of like, oh my gosh, I'm an incarnate being. The sounds don't stop coming. I can put in earplugs, but like there's mental sounds. Or I can put on an eye mask, but like the seeing can even happen internally. It's like all the sense doors that we have, and it just keeps coming. And sometimes that can feel like a lot of friction. And part of why meditation is so powerful is that what we're doing is we are creating conditions that are fertile, fertile ground to allow insight to arise. Because meditation and what you're you're cultivating in your hearts and minds is a very powerful part of the conditions that will be um, bearing fruit in the days, weeks, months, years to come. Meditation is very powerful in this way. And when we look at um, Dukkha Sankara, how deep the condition, conditionality goes, and the normative culture in this country uh, denies this hugely. You know, like the whole myth of the American dream. Like, I, I went and I did this, like... No. <laughs> Causes, conditions, system, advantage, oppression. <laughs> you know, there's so much work that goes on. And, and Carl Jung says this. He said, we carry within ourselves stories, fragments of life experience, memories, sensations, as if reaching out from the past to to find resolution in the present. It's like, oh, the struggles and strengths of our ancestors are right here, you know, in our bodies, in our minds. And, and so we're, we're born into such a depth of primary patterning. And so the patterns that you're, that you're working through here, and they, they feel, it's like they're, they're both not at all personal and profoundly personal. But they're, they're, they're all borrowed in a certain sense, you know, from the collective of humanity, the collective of where you come from. I recently heard a story on NPR about a woman. It was written by a woman... Um, 
who had a diagnosis of complex PTSD, and she wanted to understand more about it and under- understand where it came from. And one thing she was talking about is um, that rats who have had a negative experience paired with the scent of a cherry blossom have offspring that um, when they encounter the scent of a cherry blossom, they have anxiety. It's like, where does that come from? (laughs) It's kind of the mystery of the epigenetics of it all. Um, And so when when we see this, when we see how vast the Sankara Dukkha is and how powerful uh, the path of insight can be in shaping conditions in a way that lead in the direction of happiness and freedom. It's just the only thing that makes sense is mercy. So much mercy for our journeys, for the human predicament. And, and the understanding that we can back out of the suffering. That's what we're doing in the practice. We're creating conditions to back out of the suffering that's from the second arrow. And when you, when you look closely, there is no one in charge. Profoundly conditioned beings. And the thing about the unconditioned, Nibbana, it's like us. We're creating conditions that allow for a glimpse of something that's unconditioned. That allow for a glimpse of something that's uncompounded, unfabricated, unborn. Conditions are such this arises. Conditions are not such this does not arise. Do you see it in your own heart? Do you see it in your own mind, in your own life? Elizabeth Kubler-Ross says, the most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that, feels, that, that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep, loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. We're doing the work of becoming even more beautiful people. And boy, does our teaching team see it in you, in our meetings with you. So, you know, part of the rub <laughs> with the dukkha is not just that it's dukkha, but, you know, the, the culturally, we can create suffering by really not having a place for it. So I, I'm not talking about this to, to be a downer, but when suffering is not honored, you know, when it's not ritualized, 
we don't grow up all the way. We're not mirrored fully. We're, we, can't, we can't mature fully. You know, and so, and so we, we give one another a gift when we can sit with and see and name and meet the passages. Most pa- passages that involve some kind of initiation also involve some measure of suffering. I remember going through a really, a really, um, the death of someone I loved very, very much a few years ago. And it was like I was supposed to go to the funeral and then go back to life as normal. But I wasn't the same person after that happened. You know, it's just like, oh, how, how do we hold one another in this kind of a way? So important, the practice, the practice holds it. And in my own practice, you know, I talked a little bit about Quan Yin yesterday. Quan Yin isn't like a one person or something. Quan Yin is an archetype. Quan Yin is an archetype within Buddhist cosmology that's been represented in a male form, in a gender non-binary form, and in a female form through different cultures throughout time. And this archetype embodies compassion, mercy, care. She embodies the primordial wisdom that manifests as um, a deep uh, capacity for compassionate response that will, that will kind of manifest in the way that is most appropriate and needed in any particular situation. And I do a devotional practice that really comes from Mahayana, Mahayana Buddhism. And um, Durant, I've done a lot, of, a lot of training and practice in this department together over the years. It's just like, you know, in the Chinese language, Namo Quan Shi Yim Pusa. Namo Quan Shi Yim Pusa. And what these words mean, so beautiful, I return my life. I return my life to that which receives the sounds of the world at ease. I return my life to that which receives the sounds of the world at ease. And that, that, that um, prayer or intention is to... Um, be available to the cries of the world, the sounds of the world without compromising one's own ease. That's a lot of realization. It's not always like that, right? But it's a, it's a beautiful um, kind of in, invitation to connect with this kind of heart-level intuitive intelligence. And so when I, I was um, on an airplane a while ago and the, the hydraulics stopped working, so they weren't sure that the they weren't sure that, like that the wheels were going to go down when the plane landed, and so they had us, you know, all ready on the plane. I was like this, and had my phone and my money in my pocket. They said, "Get ready to run! You know, don't take your luggage." Fortunately, everything went okay, but I was I was afraid. You know, I, I didn't know quite what was going to happen. I was like, "Namo Kwanshu Yempusa." Like I didn't even have time to think about how do I do a compassion practice for my now? Now what steps is it? You know, but it was like because of all the practice, it was just what came into my heart. 
It was, it was just such a beautiful way of holding, um, you know, somewhat edgy and unexpected uh, experience. I, I often kind of return to this wish as I drive through the mountain, mountain passes in the winter in Colorado where I live. You know, it's like sometimes you can bow and just have this gentle wish of wisdom and compassion. I return my life. So, with all I'm saying, dukkha dukkha, dukkha viparinama, sankara dukkha. Again, compassion and kindness make sense. And don't make it a self-improvement project. Not helpful for our purposes. Like, don't start a project of becoming a more compassionate person. Because... You know, you're like, we'll never measure up in a certain sense. Just like, what matters is that you do the practice. And we're already connected. And so you don't have to really engineer your good work in the world in a certain sense. What's important is to not lose a motivation of compassion. Because when the motivation of compassion is there, you can trust your actions and choices a lot more. And when... um. When the mind is unclouded, the compassion just arises from the beingness. It arises spontaneously. It's the natural response of awakened awareness. So like, ah, keep that motivation. Feed that motivation. And you'll disappoint people. That's something I've found, too. Like, when I really include compassion for myself as part of the equation, like, I have to be willing to let a few people down. Okay? It's kind of, like, courageous sometimes when you actually make changes in your life that prioritize compassion that includes you. This is by the great poet Hafez, and in the poem, when the words God or beloved are used, you could substitute the word Dhamma. And in the poem, when the word dancer is used, you could, you could imagine that it's you. Hmm. It's called Parallel, the Care the Dancer Takes. Parallel, the Care the dancer takes on her finest step. You need to feel the craving for that unison. You need to know all the longings the great ones had to suffer before God said to them, here I am, yours to do with whatever you like. And when will the beloved say such a sublime thing to you to give you all that power? A prerequisite is when all you touch, you touch as if it were sacred. That will bring your mind to a standstill. The space between you and any object will then open up into a sea of radiance where you can let go for a second and taste me.
Just take a moment of quiet. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.